Today's episode, I have a very special treat, and I do not say this lightly. In this episode, I have Dr. Avram Blooming. He is the author of Estrogen Matters, and he's a board-certified internist, hematologist, and oncologist, a master member of the American Society of Physicians, or ACP, and a clinician in Southern California, previous senior investigator at the NCI. He is here to share his wealth of information on the effects of estrogen and breast tissue. We talk everything from what was the real risk of breast cancer with hormone therapy in the women's health trials, as well as what happened after that. And what do we even know about estrogen in women after a cancer diagnosis? All of this information is presented to you, my amazing, wonderful, grateful listener to help you actually make the best and informed decision about your menopausal treatment plan for you. I know you're going to love this episode. You're going to want to listen to it a couple of times and bookmark it. So buckle up and get ready. You're going to love today's show. Hi, and welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by Evia. Evia is the first ever app that utilizes the science-backed technique of using hypnotherapy to effectively manage your hot flashes and night sweats naturally. Hypnotherapy is supported by NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, is a proven mechanism to calm the body's stress response to bothersome hot flashes. Now with the Evia app, that's simply E-V-I-A in the app store, you will learn to soothe both day and night symptoms without the use of medications. You'll be able to track and evaluate your symptoms and so much more. They have a core five-week program that is Dr. Hirsch approved for at-home support. Start your seven-day free trial at eviamenopause.com slash Heather, which is E-V-I-A-M-E-N-O-P-A-U-S-E dot com slash Heather, or check the link in the description to get started. Well, thank you, Avram, so much for spending uh, some time with me this afternoon. I am beyond excited and delighted to chat with you and have my listeners listen in. Um, As you guys heard in the intro, uh, Avram has written the book Estrogen Matters, which is really one of the most critical books um, when you're on your menopause journey that I can't recommend enough. I will include a link in the description below to the book on Amazon. If you haven't read it, it's an absolutely um, must when you're making a decision. Um, so, um, So Avram, Welcome. Um, I'm delighted to to talk with you, and I would like to really start by just hearing about your story of as you were going through your medical career and how you became a board certified internist, hematologist, and oncologist, and what you loved so much about taking care of women in that time. Well, uh, most of my patients, about sixty percent over the years, have been breast cancer patients, and because I have watched the field grow so that 
breast cancer, which used to be a very frightening illness, and it's still a frightening illness, uh, we now are able to cure about 90% of newly diagnosed breast cancers. And it's important to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I treated patients. Uh, I worked with surgeons and radiotherapists. I gave hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. And I was responsible for uh, inducing premature menopause in a lot of women who would complain to me about the symptoms of menopause. I, we all know about hot flushes and night sweats, but they would complain about difficulty concentrating, about palpitations, about uh, vaginal dryness, about painful sexual intercourse, about loss of libido, about so many things that aren't mentioned in the literature. And I'm a man, I never went through menopause. And I would say as nicely as I could, but you're alive. The breast Mm -hmm. cancer we believe has been controlled, probably cured. Uh Essentially, and I didn't say it this way, suck it up, live. And then my wife got breast cancer. Oh, wow. I I gave her adriamycin cytoxan Mm -hmm. and induced premature menopause. And she's not a complainer. Yeah. Uh, But I saw what was happening. Uh, My wife is uh, a voracious reader. She's Mm -hmm. very intelligent. Mm -hmm. And she found that reading books she couldn't remember what she had read two pages before. Uh-huh. And that was devastating for her. Sure. And I began to listen more closely to the complaints I was hearing from women. And there were many complaints. And when I would ask for complaints, they were grateful just that I was asking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I began to look for ways that I might help these women deal with the lives they had partly as a result of my medical ministrations. Mm-hmm. And I, not surprisingly, looked at hormone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. uh, which is also menopausal hormone therapy. Uh, and I found that estrogen was a wonderful drug. Hmm. And over time, what I saw is, and it's important to establish this as a baseline. Uh, Menopausal symptoms affect about 80% of women uh, between 45 and 55. Mm -hmm. And we're usually told, although I don't remember being taught this, that it doesn't last a long time. And the number I carried around in my head was maybe one or two years. One year, right. Yeah, right. And it turns out the median duration of symptoms is 7.4 years. Right. That's and, so crucial. And for women of color, it's longer, longer. than that. It has a median mm. of up to 10 years. Wow. And to tell women deal with it is simply unfair if we haven't looked very carefully. And we now know that estrogen can control these symptoms in over 80% of women, nothing else comes close. Close. (laughs) Yeah, you're speaking my language, right? Sure. And so it's important to recognize that. And so many of the symptoms of menopause, just to take one, palpitations, many cardiologists whom I respect and work with, who are, have academic positions, weren't even aware 
that palpitations was one of the symptoms of menopause, and they can be very distressing. Mm -hmm. So menopausal symptoms, that's a slam dunk. Right. Heart disease, we, although more women fear breast cancer than fear heart disease, mm -hmm. it is very well established that heart disease kills about seven times more women than breast cancer does. And every time I mention that, what I hear is, sure, but heart disease kills old women and breast cancer kills young women. And I'd rather die when I'm old than die when I'm young. But in point of fact, for every decade after age 40, more women die of, breast, of heart disease than die of breast cancer. And that difference increases with every decade. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's osteoporosis. Well, osteoporosis is getting more attention over the last five years. But osteoporosis, especially osteoporotic hip fractures, carry a very serious prognosis so that something like 21% of women who have a hip fracture die within one year of the hip fracture. And it's not because of the underlying condition, except for osteoporosis, that led to the hip fracture. Hmm. That's a frightening statistic that isn't wildly heralded. And so you, you see Lauren Hutton on television, or you used to, talking about taking calcium and exercising and vitamin D. That's great. Mm -hmm. But calcium and vitamin D have no benefit for women who aren't making estrogen in terms of preventing hip fracture. It's mm -hmm. good to take it when you're young and you have adequate levels of estrogen and when you're exercising. But in a menopausal or postmenopausal woman, that's not effective. Mm -hmm. That's estrogen, really important to know. Estrogen reduces the risk of osteoporotic hip fracture by up to 50%. Yeah. And then there's Alzheimer's disease. If there is one thing that frightens women more than breast cancer, mm -hmm. it's Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Women who are in their 40s and 50s. Yeah. And Alzheimer's disease affects women preferentially for every one woman diagnosed with breast cancer, two are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Now, that's a statistic that most people can't rattle off. Right. And as of this minute, there is no treatment effective against Alzheimer's disease. Never mind that the FDA just approved one treatment, which is probably worthless. Several physicians on the FDA committee resigned when that drug was approved, I don't know the politics of it, mm. but it's not really very effective, even if you read their own literature. Mm -hmm. The yep. only drug that has shown to have benefit, although there are no randomized prospective trials, because that would be a very difficult trial to do, right. but the only drug right. shown to be effective is estrogen, which may not be effective in treatment, but helps prevent, prevent cognitive decline in up to 50% of people. That is enormous. Right, right. So, so in working as an oncologist and inducing menopause, all of your patients, and then ultimately in your wife, what an, what an interesting story. You really came through that process to realize actually all the significant benefits that estrogen has, and then looking at all the leading causes of death in women, 
it's the deprivation of estrogen, which is vastly outweighs um, any kind of morbidity mortality from, from breast cancer in, in 2022. Um, and so how do you, so you wrote a book, like, you know, how did you start grappling with that as you were progressing through your career? I didn't start with the book. You know, you have to be really arrogant to write a book. I didn't realize that, but you have to think, boy, I know something that is worth sharing with the world. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I, one of the good things about science is science with all the tests looking to test a null hypothesis is a form of arrogance control. Interesting way to think about it. You're right. We'll tell you whether you're on the wrong track. Yes. So before I wrote the book, I wrote several papers. Uh, I presented uh, to the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology in 1997. I presented a paper, and we'll get to this in a little while, on hormone replacement therapy after breast cancer, which is a study that I started back in 1992. Mm -hmm. And I I presented the data and the paper was accepted and it was in amphitheater A in Denver, Colorado, not amphitheater, room A in Denver, Colorado. And I figured room A was going to be one of the classrooms where there'd be about 25 people who were interested in the subject. And it turns out that it was in the plenary session. So I had 8,500 people wow. who were listening. Yes, listening to wow. what I said. It was a very interesting experience. And I'm from Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Not, not originally. Actually, I was from Boston before I was from Los Angeles. Oh, how cool. But, we, have to, we have that in common, even though I'm not sure. from here. but mm-hmm. Right. Well, I'm from New York originally. And uh, the paper before me, was the National Cancer Institute. National Cancer Institute had a doctor presenting a paper that was a position paper in which he said the NCI has decided that giving hormones to women with a history of breast cancer is malpractice. Mm -hmm. That was his paper. And then Mm -hmm. this doctor in private practice from Los Angeles gets up and says, well, I've been doing it. I figured I would be stoned. But in fact, what <laughs> happened is the doctors listening to the NCI presenter challenged him again and again to the point where he said, look, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger, which uh-huh. is something I've heard more often than I want to hear. Right. And my paper was uniformly praised so that the leaders of breast cancer oncology were sitting in the audience, people I knew from reputation, even those I hadn't met. And all of the questions that followed my presentation asked how they could get involved in the study. So I had a lot of exposure with this question of yeah. hormone replacement therapy long before I wrote the book. Right, because I, I, I'm th- sitting here thinking, hmm, well, in my, in, in fast forward 20 years, I, I, I don't, if, if I gave assisted up to give that talk, I don't know, I would be pretty nervous to give that talk. So little arrogance helps. And <laughs> that's the best advice I could give you. Yeah. Uh, and this was before the women's health study came out, right? Uh, this was 1997. The women's health yep. initiative came out in 2002. That is correct. Yeah. And I was building 
a reasonable number of practices around the country who were starting their own studies of this particular question. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I didn't mention in terms of benefits of estrogen is Nanada Cole, when she was at Brigham and Women's Hospital, an epidemiologist, uh, published a paper in 1999 that said that women who take hormone replacement therapy live a median of 3.6 years longer than women who don't. Mm -hmm. So that we have benefit in heart, in bone, in brain, and in longevity. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Mm -hmm. And then the Women's Health Initiative came out mm -hmm. and said, not only mm -hmm. do hormones uh, increase the risk of breast cancer, they increase the risk of uh, death from heart disease, from stroke. Uh, it was a devastating blow to this nascent movement. Yeah. And disclaimer, we're going to we're going to walk you through all of that because we don't want to leave you with that because we now know so much more information. But right. So over, the, see. over, over the last uh, 19 years now, every one of those conclusions, except one which we'll talk about, every one has been walked back. Yeah. So that the median age of women uh, in the Women's Health Initiative was 63. Uh, Which is significantly important because... Most women start hormones right. if they're going to start hormones between the ages of 45 and 51. Right. 63 is old. By the time somebody is 63, they already have some blood vessel narrowing. And it is certainly possible that estrogen, which can cause platelet agglutination can cause microthrombi that can include already occlude already compromised blood vessels. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, those bad things, heart attack and stroke, were maximal during the first year, and then they disappeared. But uh, that's a risk for a woman who's going to start now 10 years post her last menstrual period. Mm -hmm. And that window, which has now been accepted by the uh, Widely Women's accepted. Health Initiative and most of yeah, the world, yep, uh, yep, is is a good window to keep in mind. Yeah, but the Women's Health Initiative raised the specter of breast cancer. Right, and this I feel as though must have. I can't imagine what it was like uh, where you were in terms of your thought process and research in your career when all of a sudden now public enemy number one is hormone therapy. Is estrogen. Well, the as you know, uh, the incidence of hormone prescriptions in this country went from about 40% to less than 5%. And Isn't it's still crazy? running between 5 and 7%. I Many, must be prescribing like most of the hormone therapy in are. Boston. Okay. <laughs> Bravo, Heather. Oh, right. We've got and a ways to go. Five to seven five to seven percent. Is that yeah. US? Is, yes, do you know global US. rates? Okay. Uh, well, it varies from country to country, but there's yeah. no country I know that's over 10% right now. Wow. And it's fallen in most countries around the world. And we're going to walk into this next, but would you agree that it's primarily because of the fears about estrogen, especially about breast cancer after the women's health study? It's breast cancer. Yeah. Hands down, yeah, it's breast cancer. And we now know from uh, updates of the Women's Health Initiative that 
if hormones are started within the 10-year period, that window of opportunity, uh, 10 years from the last menstrual period, estrogen alone, given to women who don't have a uterus, decreases the risk of breast cancer by 23%. And that's a statistically significant, significant. decrease. And they've seen that from as early as 2006. And that's just been reinforced with years. They know, so, yes. Yes. Sorry. And I always wondered why that never gets any publicity. And, you know, I, I guess the easy answer is, of course, you know, women dying makes the news, but I will correct uh, residents, gynecologists uh, all the time about the effects of estrogen alone, primarily conjugated equine estrogen, as we saw in the women's health study, um, on women who don't have a uterus. And, 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 and that, that fact is so lost. All everyone remembers is the you increased just risk. faded, so I don't hear you, and the image is frozen. Oh, no. Let's wait are. a second. Am I back? Okay. Yes, you are. Okay. You said, and that, and... <laughs> I was saying that fact that, you know, estrogen only, the conjugated equine estrogen given in the women's health study actually decreased the risk of breast cancer in women without a uterus, that fact goes so unknown, but all everyone can remember is the fact that estrogen increased the risk of breast cancer. This is such a crucial, such a crucial, not exactly. only fact, but um, a phenomenon, right? The media seems to care when women are harmed or there's death, but not when women are healthy and, it, and living longer. Bad news sells, you know that. And we, you know better than most physicians how important the media are in disseminating a message, yeah, right. Yeah. The, what is important to know is Rowan Schlebowski, one of the principal investigators of the Women's Health Initiative, published a paper last year in which he said, you know, we've been ignoring something very important, he said. Yes, we said hormones uh, may increase the risk of breast cancer, not estrogen. The combination of estrogen and progestin may increase the risk of breast cancer, but he said, it doesn't increase the risk of death from breast cancer. Mm -hmm. None that of the fact got lost on everyone too. None of the uh, studies that have said that estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer reported an increased risk of death. And in fact, the Women's Health Initiative said, even women who took combination hormone therapy have better longevity. They have a lower risk of dying of breast cancer. They may get breast cancer, but a lower risk of dying of breast cancer and a lower risk of dying from all other causes than women who never took hormones. Another statement that should be widely publicized. Widely publicized. I say this all the time and, and uh, listener, avid listeners of my show probably do know this because it's something that, uh, you know, us who are experts and, and, and really kind of understand all these uh, delicate details of all this data really talk about all the time. But yes, that fact is so lost on folks is that incidence is so different than mortality. And we have to take each of these pieces in mind when women are making decisions about hormone therapy. And let's talk now about the combination in the Women's Health yeah. Initiative. Okay. The one thing they haven't walked back is that the combination of estrogen and progestin 
increases the risk of breast cancer. They reported that in 2002, and they even Rowan Schlabowski said, and that's still true in 2021, except it's not. Mm. And mm -hmm. this is why. There was a paper published in 2018 by Howard Hodes and Phil Sorrell, who said, if you look at the data, what you see is estrogen decreases the risk of breast cancer. And they say that estrogen plus progestin increases the risk of breast cancer. But if you graph the incidence of estrogen alone and the combination on the same graph, it's the same incidence. Hmm. How is that possible? Mm -hmm. It's possible because the control group in the estrogen-progestin combination had a lower than expected risk. So it looked like the people who were randomized to get the combination had a higher risk than control, but in fact, if you take the estrogen-only control, women who didn't get any hormones, there's no increased risk with estrogen and progestin, and yet they keep holding on to that. And so the obvious question is, well, why should that control group have a lower than expected risk? Mm -hmm. And the answer seems to be a significant number of those control women had been on estrogen before they were randomized to the control. Hmm. And if you removed those women from the control group, the increased risk disappears. That is incredible. That is such an incredible post hoc analysis of this data. And these are so important. These are difficult concepts, even for me to understand. So if you need to listen to this episode two or three times, please do. But really, and that's, that's, that changes the game. So how do we elevate this and, and really change the game? How do we keep that momentum? How do we get this idea into mainstream? Because one of the things we're probably never going to be able to do is a ran another randomized control trial in hormone therapy, but I wish we could. Well, there are now, yes. Uh, you know, it cost, it cost a billion dollars for the Women's wow. Health Initiative. Wow. It is the single most expensive medical study ever done. That I did not know. And I know a lot about the WHI, a billion dollars. That's never going to happen again. Right. And the best way I know of to change the environment, because I've spoken to doctors, I've published papers, uh, I've given talks at major conferences. Uh, I remember when mastectomy was the treatment of choice for primary breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And then lumpectomy radiotherapy was introduced actually as early as 1923, but it was, it was really uh, largely out of three institutions. Uh, one was the Brigham with Sam Hellman, a radiotherapist. Uh, the other was uh, two hospitals in New York that lumpectomy and radiotherapy started. And many of us recognized the data that showed that 
lumpectomy radiotherapy, which spared the breast of women in breast cancer, was at least as good as mastectomy, but it wasn't catching on. And mm. it didn't catch on until women were educated mm. and went to their doctors and mm. said, mm -hmm. I want to talk about this. These yes. are the data. Yes. Convince me why yes. I shouldn't have this done. Yes, I know. I, I, I know exactly. Yes, where you're headed, so what I think. What you're doing, Heather, is so important. Oh, thank because you. that's building the army of people that can help turn this tide. Got it. Oh, I love, yeah, I love that. Um, so tell me now, we've talked a little bit about taking a, a really deep look at the data in the WHI and really questioning that hormone therapy even increases the risk of breast cancer. Tell me a little bit about, I've heard you talk about this before, about the data on hormone therapy potentially after a breast cancer diagnosis. What now does that the, data look like? That's the most controversial subject. <laughs> of all time, day. right? Well, yeah, it's, it's I just keep escalating it as sure. the show goes on. And I think it's very important to recognize uh, that we're not saying hormones play no role in the development of breast cancer. There are, in fact, very good uh, laboratory in vitro studies. There are animal studies that strongly suggest that estrogen is somehow involved in the pathogenesis of breast cancer, in the development of breast cancer. But we have to look at the clinical data to see how, because we don't understand well what it's doing. We also know, just as a pearl, that before we had chemotherapy, the single best drug for treating measurable breast cancer was high-dose estrogen, and mm. it induced a 44% remission rate, partial remission rate, that Craig uh, Jordan, who developed tamoxifen, reports now that women who become resistant to tamoxifen often respond to low-dose estrogen, and their cancers regress so that estrogen is in there somehow, and we're not dismissing its possible role, but we're trying to work out the best course for treating patients who come under our care. So yeah. I told you I was a medical oncologist. I told you I was involved with the, certainly the symptoms that I had helped induce in women. Uh, I was also practicing when, uh, women with uh, recently diagnosed breast cancer would come to me that they're pregnant. And I would say, because I thought I knew that an abortion makes a great deal of sense, because if estrogen is bad, an abortion is the only way to get rid of the huge Access. amounts of estrogen that your body is making. Right. And now we know that abortion has no beneficial effect on breast cancer in a newly diagnosed woman. In fact, pregnancy after a diagnosis of breast cancer has no effect on prognosis. That's Interesting. True. That's true even for estrogen receptor positive women. Mm -hmm. Pregnancy. I, I think has, that's such an important fact. I, of I have, course it is. Right. So many young, for young women, of course, that diagnosis is 
it's not, it's not life altering for all women, but certainly if you are planning on more children and all of a sudden you're looking at, um, either medically induced menopause with Lupron, which is terrible and, or, uh, giving up your reproductive rights, um, to know this information is immensely important. And it is again, another physiological example of how high doses of estrogen didn't seem to deter their diagnosis or their future prognosis. That's exactly right. And so uh, I just finished writing a paper, which will be published in uh, May of this year. Uh, Howard Hodes, our mutual friend, uh, asked me to please write a paper on hormone replacement therapy after a diagnosis of breast cancer. And I did the best I could reviewing the world literature. And I found 25 studies in the world literature in languages that I understood uh, looking at this question. And of the 25, there is one study that said it increased the risk of breast cancer recurrence among breast cancer survivors who were giving, given hormone replacement therapy. That one study has the acronym HABITS, which is an acronym for hormones after breast cancer, is it safe? It mm-hmm. came out of Sweden. It was published in 2002. They reported an increased risk of breast cancer recurrence. They were supposed to have uh, 1,400 women They stopped after 350 women because they said, this is exposing women to an unacceptable risk. I think Mm -hmm. that's all legitimate. Mm -hmm. But that's the only study that shows an increased risk. So we have to look at that study very carefully. Mm -hmm. First, the increased risks were only increased local recurrence or increased contralateral breast cancer. There was no increased risk of distant recurrence. Mm -hmm. There was no increased risk of death from breast cancer. The increased risk was only seen among local or contralateral, in uh, local or contralateral tumors. Mm -hmm. Very important. Mm -hmm. Second, estrogen alone was not associated with an increased risk. Mm -hmm. Which is reflecting the estrogen-only arm of the WHI. Third, When Premarin was the estrogen used, even if it was used in combination, there was no increased risk. Ah, even when used in combination, like the WHI. And the increased risk with the estrogen progesterone uh, was only seen among women who were also taking tamoxifen. I have no explanation Hmm. for that. I don't understand it. The numbers were very small. That may be a fluke. Most importantly, this study, which is used as the golden study that everyone refers to, one out of 25, Mm -hmm. that found only increased recurrence of local or contralateral tumors, did not do imaging studies on the breasts of these survivors when they entered the study. Mm, You don't know their baseline. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's so important. And they they found these recurrences at a median of 1.2 years. So Mm -hmm. it's very early. Mm -hmm. It is certainly possible 
that these women who had recurrences had some underlying breast cancer that became apparent. They stopped the study at two years, and yeah. that study is held up as the major study. Why? Well, first, it's prospectively randomized, and admittedly, prospectively randomized studies are generally good studies, mm -hmm. but not doing the imaging study on entry to the study is a mm -hmm. very big problem with that study. Second, the three other prospectively randomized trials found no increased risk of any recurrence. Hmm. At the same time that that study was going on in Sweden, there was a similar, in uh, Sweden, habits, there was another study being done in Stockholm, also Sweden, but a separate study, looking at the same thing. They followed women for 10 years. They found no increased risk of recurrence. Mm -hmm. And the other 24 studies, well, including the Stockholm study, show no increased risk of recurrence, and two show a decreased risk of recurrence. And so what I did is I then looked at all the review articles that I could find in the literature that reviewed these 25 studies. And in all those review articles, reviewing the world literature, some were meta-analyses, the only study that was shown to have an increased risk of recurrence was the habits study, hmm. this same study. study. Yeah. Having hmm. said that, some of the review articles so convinced that hormones would increase the risk of recurrence, misquote the literature they're reviewing and say, we found an increased risk of distant recurrence. Or, and no. it's not true. Not true. You just told us that. Yeah. And in this article, I have uh. all the references and the misquotes and the correct quotes. Yeah. And we'll see if that makes a ripple. Well, I think that you have really helped to answer one of two of my big questions. And the, the first one being, how do we get this information to... In deep into the minds and the, and the, you know, change in biases of providers. And you said, you know, continue creating this army of women. And so I love that. My second question, I would love how you phrase this. What do you say to women who are more afraid of breast cancer than cardiovascular disease and osteoporotic fracture uh, or Alzheimer's, which we, which we looped back to, or we talked about in the beginning when they're making a decision about menopausal treatment, because I, I like you think that certainly women have absolutely the right to make their own decisions about how they're going to treat their menopause. And one of the things I find whenever I'm teaching about hormone therapy inevitably someone will always say, well, you know, Dr. Hirsch, my patients don't want hormone therapy. And I say, I don't think that's true. I don't think that they have enough information and it's complex, even if they had all that information to make the right decision. And the fear is always about breast cancer. So how do we help women who are more afraid of developing breast cancer from say hormone therapy, even though we've spent the latter part of 20 minutes breaking that down, what do you say who are, to those women who are more afraid of that than of other chronic diseases? 
Well, the main reason I wrote the book, and I, I have to mention that I wrote the book together with Carol Tavris. Carol Tavris is a PhD social psychologist who is a superstar. Yeah. Carol would take uh, ch chapters that I wrote and she'd say, no, 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 this isn't really a chapter. It has to be played with a little. And she would put in a sense of humor and <laughs> she would put in sarcasm, which I can't put in a medical article so that I'm not used to using that. <laughs> I know what and you mean. It's I'm hard sure to switch do. gears when you're writing like that. And it is heavily referenced. I, we referenced it the way we would reference an academic paper. So women who read the book can say to their doctors, well, I just read this. What do you think of that? And if it's challenged, it's not some doctor in Southern California talking off the top of his head. These are references that you can look at that have to be responded to. Right. And one thing I want to mention that we glossed over a little quickly, but you know and I know, is the HABITS trial, that one study that has changed everything, mm. randomized uh, 221 women to get hormones and 221 women not to get hormones after breast cancer. And of the 221 who were uh, given hormones, 39 had this local recurrence. And of the 221 who didn't get hormones, 17 had a local recurrence. That's a difference of 22 women. Because of those 22 women, the millions of women in the mm -hmm. world who are diagnosed with breast cancer are told they must avoid hormones at all costs. Yeah. That's that's absurd. That's yeah. a Monty Python thing. That's not yeah. medicine. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. so the book is a way of the book, and I'm not plugging the book. I mean, clearly what you're doing with podcasts is you're trying to educate women and point women in the right direction without proselytizing. If you yeah. don't want to take hormones, of course don't take hormones. Right. But if you do... Don't let some arbitrary statement frighten you off from pursuing it. I love that. That really does encapsulate so much of the messaging that I, I do every single day, whether I'm you know, in my attic podcasting or I'm in my office talking to patients. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. Um, it's so nice to hear so much of this uh, background and your story. And I'm still thinking of you in 1997 in uh, lecture Denver. room A, yes. <laughs> you know, so I have to ask my last question, like, yeah. what would that lecture be like today? If you were doing that lecture today, how many people would be there? Do you think, what do you think the questions would be? Is that lecture even given today? And I know, you know, um, we have actually in our group, aha, advancing health after hysterectomy, a group of us who uh, are, are really very vested in uh, helping to expand education on menopause have talked a little bit about this beforehand, but what do you think if you were going to give that lecture today, would it be 8,500 people? Would it be more? Would it be less? 
you know, what are the chances a talk like that could get to the National Cancer Institute's uh, conventions? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the time, 8,500 was a large percentage of the total ASCO body. I think yeah. ASCO membership has now increased around the world. Yeah. Uh, and they're holding their seminars in Chicago in very large auditoriums. This was Denver, uh, not that large. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I don't think it's one lecture. It's, yeah. it's the grassroots stuff that you and I and people like us are doing that will make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, but it requires patience. Mm. Um, that one's hard for me. Yes. And perseverance. I, I have a t-shirt I bought in one of the museums here in Los Angeles that uh, quotes Winston Churchill. It's a red t-shirt. I never wear it, but I take it out and look at it. And it's a red t-shirt. And in big capital letters, it says, never give up, never give up, never give up. And it helps. Yeah, that's what we have to do. Well, I am so delighted to call you a mentor and colleague and friend and someone whose um, books and papers I have read. And it's so delightful that we get to have this talk today. Um, I also want to give a moment to really give praise and thanks to some of the some of our male counterparts who I really call feminists yourself and colleagues that you've mentioned on this episode, Dr. Howard Hodes and Dr. Phil Sorrell and Dr. James Simon. And there's many others. I'm, I'm probably forgetting them. Those are just the ones I think we had maybe talked about on this show, but there are some incredible, um, you know, physicians who are advancing the health of women, as well as of course, females, um, but certainly midlife and menopause and hormone therapy is such a feminist, um, thing, whether we're talking about the healthcare or the productivity of women or, um, you know, their, um, just how much they bring to our lives. In fact, we were talking before we got on about, uh, how, uh, important women are actually, we weren't talking about this. This is what I took this to say is that how important women are in keeping men alive. Um, right. Isn't it that male men who have partnered live longer than the, right. So Absolutely. there's, you know, I'm, I'm totally taking this in the direction you did not, but I, 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 I think that, um, everything that, uh, you and, um, our colleagues and my mentors have done has paved the way for me to, uh, have this education and have, um, this, uh, excitement and this enthusiasm to build these platforms, to give women this type of information. So any final thoughts, um, before we wrap up? Sure. The British Medical Journal published a survey last year that said that 40% of female medical practitioners in England were uh, retiring mm -hmm. early or cutting back early because of menopausal symptoms. What a devastating comment. Loss. Yeah. It is, a, it is nothing short of a public health issue, public health crisis, potentially, yes, absolutely. Um, when we don't look at the impacts of untreated menopausal symptoms on women of all sectors and all professional levels. 
Right. Well, you there and, is you, more work to be done. Right. You and I were joking just as we conclude this about what would happen if men went through menopause, not women. Yes. And, you know, men, uh, yes, we know that you can't think clearly. You start sweating in the middle of a presentation. You're not sleeping well. Uh, you don't want sex. And if you agree to sex, it's painful. Uh, but suck it up. It'll only last 7.4 years. That would never happen. Right. No. So the inequalities are, are so blatantly obvious. And um, I'm really remotivated and excited and energized to continue to do all of the things that I've been doing because I do think you're right. We have to get women excited. And that metaphor, maybe not a metaphor, but um, the example you gave rather of lumpectomies versus mastectomies really hit that home for me. And I hope Good. for any of my listeners, uh, you know, if you love this episode, if you thought this episode was um, so interesting or so exciting, please share it with a friend or post it to your social media. Definitely click the links in the description of this show. You can find a lot of the references as well as um, the book Estrogen Matters. And you know, our message is we want you to make an informed decision about your menopausal treatment plan. And, you know, it's not always what you think it is. And so this has been just a great episode to really re-challenge and rethink about um, the use of menopausal hormone therapy, especially around one of the biggest fears for people, which is, um, you know, potentially maybe a fear of increased risk of cancer the incidence of, not mortality of. Thank you, Avram, so much. I really appreciate you being on. I can't wait to get you on again and continue uh, to follow up. Good luck with your publication that's coming out in May. This is going to be a really big step for women. Thank you so much. And to everyone, I'll see you again next week for a brand new episode. Bye, everyone. If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Good.